1: LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today.
2: Hey, folks, this is Kevin. Just a few words before we start. If you don't already know, your fellow Risk fans love... Our deal with AdamandEve.com. In fact, now we've got repeat customers. And I've gotten good stuff from them, too. They've got condoms, lube, toys, DVDs, and more. Our deal is, you go to AdamandEve.com, you type in the offer code R-I-S-K at the checkout, get 50% off just about any item, three free adult DVDs, free shipping, and an extra surprise. AdamandEve.com. Offer code is RISK. Now here's the show.
1: Risk. Risk. Mm-hmm. Risk. 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 Yeah. Risk. Risk. Mm-hmm. Risk. 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 Yeah. Risk. Risk. That is funny. Risk. 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 All right. Risk. It's a good time. Risk. That's great. Risk. I agree. Risk? Yeah. Risk. Risk. Yeah.
3: yeah.
2: Risk.
1: <laughs> oh my
3: god. Oh man. That's pretty That's funny. terrific.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Hello kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories. They never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. That was a collage by Jeff Barr up top. And this is the great, the truly great Stephen Bernstein behind me now. Well, Folks, today's episode is pretty near and dear to my heart. We're calling this one Try. Uh, These are stories where people were kind of being daring in exploring parts of their identity. You know, say, maybe I'm capable of this thing. And in the spirit of this episode, you know, I've never tried speaking at length at the top of a show like this. And uh, I think uh, I think I am right now. (laughs) Um, You know, it's kind of been weighing on me. How can I push myself? How can I go new places with my hosting and my storytelling uh, because you know we're coming on two years of this show now and pushing ourselves has always been the idea and here's here's a confession I have always been super super insecure about those two things my hosting and my storytelling uh, that shouldn't be too huge a surprise everyone on this show is nervous right Performers are nervous. But let me give you a little bit of a background. Uh, When I was growing up, my mom used to say things to me like, um, Kevin, stop stop having so much facial expression. Uh, Kevin, stop enunciating your words so much. Um, Kevin, use smaller movements when you gesture. And so... Well, so I became a comedian uh, because, you know, I started to feel like, okay, I'm a freak. Where is a social setting where I can, um, where I can pass, right? But when I got in the state, I found that all of that insecurity was still so much there only in this new social setting. I never dropped the self-consciousness. I was terrified all throughout being in the state, and when the group broke up, I just thought, oh, God, I can't start getting on stage as just myself now. No one will ever get me. I'm too corny. I'm too bizarre, too Midwestern, too gay, too vulgar, too too nice even. So for 13 years, I did not get up on stage as myself. For four years, I left show business altogether. Uh, and I went nowhere. I went absolutely nowhere. I was one of those people who might as well have fallen off the face of the earth. And then in 2008, I did a show of character monologues. See, what that, that, when I was getting up on stage at all, I was doing cartoonish characters. I was kind of hiding behind them. But in 2008, I was tired of uh, just the pure silliness, and I wanted to start telling my stories. So I I had these crazy characters telling my stories. The show was called F-Up. They were all failures. They were characters who had fucked up their whole lives, and they were having a hard time just being themselves and making it work. Uh, there was, like, a British actor who was too drunk to perform because he had stage fright. There was like a Yiddish comedian who was too jealous of his fellow comedians, his scene partners, and was always shooting himself in the foot. But these characters were still lovable because they were still trying. You know, they were like Laurel and Hardy. I saw Laurel and Hardy kind of as like my patron saints at that time. But that show itself Turned out to be a bit of a failure, a bit of a fuck-up, uh, the, the ultimate performance of it. I went out to San Francisco to their sketch fest there. It was a huge 300-seat theater with very high ceilings. I think maybe 12 people showed up, round about that, and uh, I was screaming throughout the whole show because there was no mic. It was just horrifying. It was one of my most horrifying moments on stage. And I just felt like I couldn't connect with anyone at all. Like I wasn't getting through. There was no, no reciprocal energy happening between me and the audience. And I walked away from the show. And uh, Michael Ian Black from the state had been there. And we're walking away from the show. And he could tell how depressed I was. And I said, what would you think? And he said, Kevin, I think everyone in that room wanted the same thing, you and all of us in the audience. We all wanted you to just drop the act and start speaking as yourself, even if you weren't ready to. (laughs) And I said, uh, yeah, I know, I hear that. I feel like I've been hearing that my whole life, but uh, that's so risky. I'm so scared of that. And he said, yeah. Well, that risky stuff is where anything of any worth comes from. And that conversation right then and there was the germinating seed from which this show came. You know, I woke up yesterday and I was going to record this hosting segment and I opened my iTunes and checked the comments. A lot of people say, Kevin, you check what people say about you on iTunes? That's pathetic. I don't know how I couldn't. About once a month, someone will write, I love Risk. I hate Kevin Allison. <laughs> 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 They'll say, this show is perfect if only the host would go away. I make them cringe. I'm too vulgar, too big to this, to that, to the other. And what usually happens is that a day or two of of massive depression sets in when I read comments like that. And I start to argue with myself. I say, yeah, yeah, maybe I should. Maybe I should just be a facilitator, letting other people tell their stories. Stop, Stop with my own stuff. But I can't let it mean that anymore. Because Risk turned my life around, not because of any attention or compliments that I ever got for my own stories or hosting, but because in telling my own stories and being a host like this, I've gotten so many people to join in. I said, let's do a show where it's not all about being polished and perfect and memorized and workshop. Let's do a show where you're just trying stuff out, like when you share something with your friends. And so many people... Gove in with their hearts and souls. I'm talking about you, the listeners. I'm talking about all the performers. Being yourself is an infinite effort. You know, we have an infinite ability to continue becoming more and more ourselves. And if you're trying to be more yourself, you are at least going somewhere. If you're avoiding it, you're just standing still. That's what I've learned from this show and the 13 years of going nowhere that preceded this show. So, when I read those comments on iTunes, I know, look, I'm just not that guy's cup of tea, most likely. But, if I keep trying to be myself, Maybe one day he'll get me. Doesn't matter. Because I'm going places. Let's you and me keep going places together. Our first story comes to us from the lovely Miss Dawn Frazier. Dawn is a writer for the sketch comedy group American Candy, She took our storytelling workshop at thestorystudio.org a little bit ago and has been tearing up the New York City storytelling scene ever since. We call this one Tall, Dark, and What?
3: Most people have some type of hobby in their lives, right? Some people, they collect coins. Other people collect stamps. But I, I collect lesbians. (laughs) And let me tell you, as a straight woman, this has gotten me into all kinds of issues. Now, it's not necessarily that I've gone out, like, necessarily like, seeking lesbians or queers, as my more political and conscious brothers and sisters like to put it. But it's just that in every aspect of my life, whether it was through work or through school or just a homie that I had met since I was in the fourth grade, all of these ladies became part of my, my core, or as I like to call it, my collective. So four or five of us would, would get together and we would roll out to a club. And you know, we'd be all like decked out and have these tight dresses on. And I would refer to them as the estrogen entourage or le entourage. And I to them was their ambiguous straight chick. So one day I was mentioning to a friend, one of my only straight friends, by the way, that I was having a hard time finding men to date. And she like rolled her eyes at me and said, Well, hello, pendeja. Why don't you think about losing the lesbos? <laughs> dump the dykes. I mean, how do you expect to meet men if they're always going to try and get you to convert? And I said, you know, that's that's just wrong. That's just wrong. These are I mean, I can't just dump my friends, you know, I mean. That's ridiculous, don't you have any other ideas? She said, well, I don't know. Have you thought about online dating? I said, no, I haven't, but you know what? I will, specifically so I can meet a tall, educated, beautiful man to take home to my Trinidadian mother. So, I go online and I decide to fill out a very honest profile on Match.com, okay? I'm interested in men. My hobbies, I like poetry and I collect people. (laughs) Specific kinds of people. And politics, black power, baby. And to reinforce it, I sent this picture of myself with my hair like picked out in a fro and I had like, you know, the fist pump. And you know, so I I really looked like a radical, like Black Panther, you know? (laughs) But I had this big smile on my face so I looked like a cheesy Black Panther. And I said send and to see what the the cupids from Match.com would come back with. So you can imagine my surprise about two weeks into this little experiment when I get this email from a white woman. I was like what 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 the hell is this so I, I i click on it and and in the profile is this woman who has like this long long curly blonde hair and it's flailing to the back and she has this flask in her hand and she's wearing this tight tight lingerie type of a dress thing and the email says so any chance you want to try something new <laughs> And I thought, you know what, this has got to be a joke. I knew it, I just knew that one of the members of my entourage was fucking with me, I just knew it. And so I wrote back, I was like, you know what, this is really funny, like, what, what's the deal here? You do know that I am straight, right? And she replied, well, yeah, I was once straight too. <laughs> Until somebody hit me up. And now I've seen the light. <laughs> and I was just cracking up at this. I mean, of all the ladies on Match.com that she could have hit up, she found me? I mean, what, was, what were the chances? And so I, I wrote back, I was like, you know what? It just so happens that I have a lot of queer friends, okay? They've come from work, they've come from school, they've come from everywhere. So who knows, you know? Maybe you'll just be a member of my entourage. Sure, we'll go out, we'll hang out. Why not? So, we agreed to go out, and our first date, we decided to meet up at uh, the Orican, which is like a poetry cafe. And the first thing that I noticed about her was that she was actually like my same height, which I wasn't expecting, but then I looked and I saw that she was wearing like these five-inch stiletto heels and had like this kind of like a rocker look to her, like she looks like she just got out of a club, and I was like, alright, well you know, she looks, she looks pretty decent, whatever. <laughs> Okay, that's, that's fair. So we go inside the New Oregon. And uh, at, at this point in junction in, in my life, I was really, really, really into slam poetry. I just loved it. Um, mostly because I really wanted to speak like this. <laughs> and have amazing words of poetry coming out of my mouth and people nodding their heads in affirmation and snapping their fingers. (laughs) But in reality, I didn't really have much to say. (laughs) My poetry was pretty whack. And I knew it was whack. So I literally just sat there and sat there and sat there all the time while people were getting up and I never never took the stage. But Sam did. I remember she, she stood up and, and I felt like I'd literally like, a, like acquired butterflies like as she was standing up. It was so bizarre. But she gets to the mic and she just spits this amazing, amazing poem just like out of nowhere. And people got on their feet and were applauding and laughing and everyone was just like in amazement. And I was like, wow, like who is this white woman? Like, this is bizarre. But, you know, I was like, okay, well, hey, this is, this is a lot of fun. This is a lot of fun. Let, let's, let's do it again. So, about a week later, we return to the New York, same place, same time. This time, it was a slam. And once again, Dawn sits idly by, watching as all the activities happen. She inserts his name into the hat again. Boom! wins the slam. And I was like, whoa, this is ridiculous. I mean, this is sick. This chick is hot. Okay. (laughs) This is hot. And it was so weird because I couldn't really figure out if I was like really like drawn to like her womanliness, you know, or if it was just that I was so like deep and into her mad lyrical skills. You know, I couldn't really figure out like which way I was going with this, but I was like, whatever, maybe I'm meant to be the president of her fan club. Hell, I don't know. But I am just gonna go with this feeling, you know what I'm saying? I'm just gonna go with it. So because little by little, she was giving me like a little bit more courage. I was like, you know, she can get up there and do this poetry, maybe I can too. And so little by little, I was getting my courage, I was getting my courage, I was working it up, I was working it out. But at the same time, she started being a little bit more distant. Uh, It was a little bit more challenging to to set a time to go out. She was a little bit slower to respond to my text messages, my IMs, until finally I contacted her and I was like, hey, hey, what up, Shorty? You working on some new poetry? I was like, what's the deal? Let's go do this. Like, you know, let's go to a slam. Let's make it happen. What, what, you know? And she was like, hey, what's up, Dawn? You know, I've been, I, I've been, I've been meaning to, to contact you. I was like, word, let's, you know, let's, let's hang, let's, let's, let's do this. You're, you're the shit, I'm your fan, let's make this happen, you know? And she was like, actually, I have something I need to tell you. I met somebody new, and I said, a new man? She said, a new woman, and unlike you, she is definitely gay. And I said, OK, so are you, you're breaking up with me because I'm not gay? <laughs> uh, you, you, you can't break up with me because I'm not gay. That's, that's like, that is reverse discrimination, which is the stupidest thing a black person could ever say. And it was just so bizarre because here I was kind of getting upset over this when I went on to Match.com in the first place because there was too many ladies and I was looking for a man but I found a woman and it was, everything was just like a big mind fuck, you know? I couldn't figure out why I was even still on this site. But you know, like as as it turned out, I mean I had to let her be. She was clearly online to find wifey and I wasn't. So when it was all said and done, I realized that, you know, she did actually help me get a lot more courage. And I never did find that tall, educated, dark skinned man that I could take home to my Trinidadian mother, Uh, nor did Samantha become part of my extended entourage as I initially thought she wouldn't, but I was very, very grateful for the experience because now I at least have a great story to tell on my next first date. Thank you.
5: one thing straight i'm a band nerd i'm a bando bandy band fag band geek whatever it was you called it in high school that was me um i got really into it when i learned how to play the oboe i mean i saw it in concert once and i was like that thing that sounds like it's piercing through the orchestra i want to play that it was so showboaty it was so kind of apt for soloistic performance that I wanted to to shine in the middle of the orchestra. Um, So, one of the things that really, really made me want to play the oboe was listening to a couple pieces by uh, this guy named Gustav Holst. He wrote two uh, concert band pieces, and both of them feature a really gorgeous oboe solo. Um, really singing kind of piece. It's a very vocal instrument. When you play it, the way that it makes a sound sounds so much that it sounds like you're singing through it. And when you play the oboe enough, you know how to make it sing. And you figure out how to make it sing. And I think it's the most gorgeous sound that an instrument could ever produce. So through this whole band nerddom, you know, junior year of high school, I was applying for colleges and I had this kind of weird fame moment where I was like, no, you know what, I'm going to apply for music performance because I, I, I wanted to like live that weird, ridiculous fantasy of... Of living in the big city and, and being surrounded by these these amazing people who play the instrument as well as you do and they're also committed to it and it's you know lovey-dovey happy in this big city and i'm like yes i'm a superstar so the audition comes around and i bring my uh mom with me to new york and you know we're supposed to go sightseeing every once in a while to kind of like get a feel for it and uh i just i just can't take in any sights you know you're supposed to be looking at this gorgeous tall building and i'm just playing the fingerings to Tchaikovsky opus 20 and I can't concentrate. So the day of the audition finally comes um, and I'm shaking. I shake all the way to the audition hall. I bring my mom with me for support and not just emotional but actual literal support because I feel like I might be falling down the staircase to get up to the audition room. So I go into the practice room by myself and kind of calm myself down. So I start playing scales. and the thing takes over, the music takes over. And it's not just the oboe anymore, and it's not just you anymore. It's that exchange of making the sound and playing it. and then hearing yourself through the music. So you calm yourself down. And then I was kind of ready for it. So I go into the audition room and it's a jury of four people who are judging you whether or not you're good enough to be accepted into this program. And luckily for me, my jury consisted of people who all were ringers for daytime talk show hosts. Judge Judy was my head proctor. Right next to her was a skinny Ricky Lake uh, and then a Geraldo Rivera and then Dr. Phil. So they see they see me carrying my oboe and, and uh, you know, Dr. Phil cracks a smile and J- Judge Judy looks at me and he goes, hello, what's your name? uh what will you be playing for us today and i say i'm miguel i'll be playing tchaikovsky opus 20 act two scene one um and uh selections from peter and the wolf just because uh and they're like great and uh kind of no pressure judge judy adds that's excellent i love those pieces i love the oboe can you play a couple scales for us first so uh, it's it's so nerve-wracking. I'm sure you've been in that situation where someone asks you to do something, um, like when you say you know a second language, and then someone says, Hey, okay, so say this. It's, it doesn't work that way. But you're kind of forced into that situation when you have an instrument in front of you, and you say you're pretty good, and Judge Judy tells you to play a E-flat scale. I realize that I'm so nervous that my face starts tightening up, so my lips start shaking. Um, so I didn't really have to compensate for uh, playing something uh, with vibrato. Again. <laughs> and uh, I start playing. Um, I play Peter and the Wolf first because it's the one that everyone knows. And you see Dr. Phil kind of cross his arms and Geraldo Rivera kind of lean a little forward and put his hands together. And Judge Judy says that was very good. Um, what will you be playing for next? And Tchaikovsky Opus 20 is the Swan Lake Ballet. And Act 2 Scene 1 starts with a grand theme. Um, at first it's just violins that are playing this gorgeous kind of uh, shaking sound. It's meant to evoke the forest leaves. And then the oboe comes in. The oboe comes in and uh, the part of the story where uh, the princess is among the swans and she starts dancing and the prince is so entranced because he was out to go hunting to relax himself that he lowers his bow and falls in love with this dance. Falls in love with this swan, really. And he realizes that it's a princess that's trapped in that swan body and that you're supposed to evoke this kind of really melancholy dance about not being who you are and being trapped in the place that you are and not knowing. And the music takes over. And you... I don't know how you describe playing an emotion, but you make it sing, And... You know how to make it sing, because it's you behind the instrument. So after I finish, Judge Judy leans back in her chair, she smiles. She says, thank you. So I just kind of go out the room and collapsing into my mother's arms, literally collapsing all over her afterwards, and was just like, I'm just glad that it's over. So the rest of junior year kind of goes along with the rest of junior year, you know, junior prom happens, and the SATs happen, and the big envelopes start coming in. I got this really pretty blue and white one from Yale, um, but I don't know. It was just way too expensive. <laughs> uh, I got this uh, red and yellow one with stars on it from USC, which just looks really—it's so LA. And then, and then this one comes. I I remember I remember this so vividly. I had just gotten back from school. I'm eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and I remember I haven't picked up the mail yet. So I go outside to go to the mailbox. I pick up the. I pick up the mail and it's 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 hidden there next to like the target circular is this like beautiful purple and white envelope, and I you know my heart stops, I die a little inside, and I almost throw up the peanut butter jelly sandwich that I just had, and I rush back into the kitchen counter and I open it, and it says, "Dear Miguel, congratulations, we'd love to uh welcome you to the class of two thousand and two um and then that word unfortunately. and it, it stings because it says unfortunately you're we can't place you in our music program it's like we like you but we don't really like you like you and it's disappointing but it's the kind of disappointing that you don't really realize until you're crying in your room two weeks later so it takes you a while um, it took me a while to get over that, it took me about six months to start playing the oboe again. You know, it was still in band, which made it hard. It's like seeing the girl you broke up with, like, in the same room, and it's awkward. And it, you play it, and it's unwieldy. But, you know, I, I would take the instrument out of the case. I'd put it together. And there's that moment of hesitation when you look at it, and you just say, I don't know if this is a good idea. Because then everything comes back of of you being weighed down by it. Now I keep my oboe in my room. There's two etude books right next to it. And then another book of just ridiculous solo pieces. If you ever want to hear Misty on an oboe, and you don't, I know how to do it. But it's there. And you go back to the things you know because those are the things that kind of make you who you are you tell yourself as much as possible whether or not these people like you that you are worth it and that it's good and you might have failed in that aspect but i like that i'm not being paid (laughs) to play the oboe there's a reason why it's called a profession right you you profess that the instrument is what it is and that you are part of it but I really like the fact that I'm an amateur because I love it. And at the end of the day, you know, I still know how to play the oboe. I still really like that I play the oboe. And God damn it, I still know how to make it sing.
4: Are you ready? Get set. Are you ready? Are you all ready? Are you ready? Get set. Are you ready? Get set. Let's go. Does your hair look right? Is your fly done up? Have you popped your pimples? Have you got your coat and some nippy on? Just keep it simple. Are you all cashed up? I could lend you some. Well, I'd be glad to. Ready, get set, are you ready? Are you all ready? Are you ready, get set? Are you ready, get set? Let's go. Is the cat put out? Is the iron off? We don't want to come home to a fire. Have you trimmed your beard? Are your sandals shine? Do you look like a hipster messiah? Have you got your keys? Have you got ID? Did you bring a car?
2: This is Risk. That is uh, Are You Ready? by a band called Fatty Gets a Stylist. I wish that were my story. My story ends before you even get to uh, the verb in that phrase. And we just heard Miguel de Leon uh, do a story we call Amateur. Uh, Gorgeous voice. You know, this story is all about music, but when I listen to it, I can't help but... Just appreciate how how there's a musicality to the human voice itself, and Miguel is just a lovely person to listen to. Um, he is also a member of the improvisational storytelling troupe called MIMSY, M-I-M-S-Y, that performs here in New York. They mix true storytelling with improv games. So talk about trying something new. Kudos to them. All right, folks. It's high time I let you in on just what in hell has been going on behind the scenes here at Risk. We are preparing an enormous fundraiser in honor of our being turning two and in honor of the fact that we're running completely out of money. In honor of the fact that my uh, assistant called me this morning and said she'd be happy to go without pay for the foreseeable future and that I might not be able to pay my rent next month. But more than anything else, in honor of the fact that we are dead set determined to keep this going. Our school, our podcast, and our live shows. We're going to do a huge fundraiser on Indiegogo.com. It's not there yet. But it'll be there very soon. And when it is, you will be able, when you pledge to our fundraising drive, you will be able to get remarkable things. A lock of my hair, uh, a photo of me wearing your shoes tied to my balls, um, a whole day of, of personal insulting tweets sent to you by Lisa Lampanelli, Copies of cartoons drawn by Tom Lennon, Joe Latrulio, and uh, Michael Showalter on actual state scripts from the mid 90s when we were working on the show. We're going to have signed, autographed butt plugs. You could win free coaching, storytelling coaching sessions with me. You could get a personalized uh, sound collage or song from the people who who make most of our sound collages and songs. There will be a new all-star episode. It's just going to be a big, big, big time in the next couple months. So get ready to (laughs) spread the word and to give uh, more details soon. Alright, now you know. Our next story comes to us from uh, the woman that the great New York storyteller Peter Aguero calls the crazy lady herself. <laughs> this is Melanie Hamlet with a story we call I Don't Know How to Love Him.
3: Are you all ready? Are you ready? Get set? Are you ready?
4: Like, I kind of like to put myself in situations where I might be uncomfortable, and, and particularly like to be in situations where there's, I'm around people who I normally judge and I kind of don't want to, so like I kind of immerse myself around them and kind of see their point of view. So what better place to do that than a Christian-themed amusement park?
1: The Holy Land Experience in Orlando, Florida is an incredible place where you can go back in time and not just see, but experience life in biblical times.
4: They had like, you know, Adam and Eve. They had like all of the animals getting under the ark. They had the actual boat you could go inside. They had a big giant plastic whale. And if you walk inside of the whale, there's like Jonah the mannequin, like hanging out. And then I went and did the holy communion and basically it was like me and 50 other people in this cave and as soon as you go through like there's pharaoh guy standing at the door and he's handing out like a teeny tiny little cracker to everybody and this little bitty wooden shot glass full of grape juice so we all stand there holding our cracker and our juice and the disciple dudes come out and they like give some speeches or whatever and then jesus comes out and he gives like this speech and everyone's just like oh mesmerized by him so when he's done he comes out into the crowd and he starts touching people touches them. you know, bless you my child bless you but then he gets like a few feet away from me and we lock eyes and he's got these beautiful blue eyes and he's got like this long dirty blonde hair he's guy's gorgeous and his big man hand is like advancing towards me and he lays it on my shoulder and he like pauses for a minute and he's like bless you. As soon as his hand hit my shoulder, I like had like this, this like electricity just was like, you know, and and uh, my knees buckled a little bit. I'm pretty sure like I looked like someone out of a tent revival, like with snakes and stuff. And uh, I dropped my little wooden cup on the ground, and it like bounced and echoed, and that pretty much ruined our moment. So he moved on to the people beside me. Bless you, bless you, bless you, whatever. But then he came back around, and he touched me on the back. So that's twice, right? And I don't mean to brag, but he didn't touch anybody else more than once but me. So I'm like kind of thinking I'm special, you know? And so I kind of get this Jesus fever going on where something where I'm like, I know it's just the actor playing Jesus, but like I'm like fascinated by him and I just want to like see more of him and everyone else is just kind of like got the Jesus fever too. So I'm sitting there thinking, I wonder what the chances are that I could actually like hook up with him, you know? Cause I mean, first of all, I'm on vacation, and that's pretty much the only time I ever hook up with anybody. Um, and then on top of that, the the odds are pretty much in my favor, because all of these good Christian women around me, there's no way any of them are going to take Jesus out to their car and fuck him in the back seat. So I'm like, I bet that I could pull this off if he was into it, and maybe he's like just like a struggling actor from New York, and he's not really Christian, and we'd totally be down with that. So... This Roman guard comes on stage and starts beating the shit out of Jesus. So like Jesus falls to the ground and they like escort him off stage. And then the announcer comes over the speaker and he was like, "Everybody, that in 20 minutes, the Passion of the Christ will be outside." So all like 2,000 of us like shuffle outside. And then he like, he shows up and he looks he looks bad. Like he looks really stressed out and kind of depressed and. His hair's all messed up, he's got like bedhead, And he gives this like really somber speech about something, I don't know what, wasn't really paying attention because I couldn't stop looking at him. And, um, and then all of a sudden some guards come out of nowhere and they like take him away and they take him over to this post. And at the post they like rip off his robe. So now he's wearing nothing but a diaper basically, like a cloth diaper. And they like bind his hands, up, his wrists up above him and they start whipping the shit out of him right now they've got some special effects guys working for him or something because every time one of those Roman guards would would whip him there like blood would show up on his back and like bruises and stuff it was crazy so by the time they were done his back was like covered in blood and bruises and every time they went in for a whip he would like arch his back and be like You know, like, super good actor. This guy should totally be in New York City on Broadway, not in Holy Land. Anyway, so while this is all going on, like, the devil is watching. He's, like, looks like a character out of Harry Potter. You know, he's got, like, a black hood on and, like, these long fingernails. And he's just like, ha, 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 And all the audience is like, boo, boo, you devil. Anyway, when they're done whipping him, and they kind of toss him out into... In the area right in front of the crowd and I'm like front row and he lands right in front of me on all fours so everyone around me is kind of flipping out in their own way like kids are crying the adults are like upset like some of them are crying some of them are like Jesus, Jesus. everyone's going crazy and I feel bad because I want to be upset and I kind of want to be there with these people um, I'm mildly disturbed by what I'm seeing but more than anything I just want to fuck this guy Like, and this is the most inappropriate place ever to be horny, but um, I should probably stop right here and explain. First of all, I'm a 31-year-old woman at this point in time without a child or a boyfriend or anything. So these baby-making organs in me and the the hormones, they will attach themselves to anything that seems promising, even the Son of God. On top of that, it had been, oh, I don't know, like over a year and a half since I had had sex with... Any guys, and mostly because I have this tendency of when I find something I really like, I take it a little overboard and you know, I just bang like way too many guys randomly before. And so I just like, you know, caged that tiger a long time ago. Well, now the tiger wants out, you know, because I've been like, you know, the whole touching thing in the cave, there's blood there's sweat, there's testosterone. There's just like, you know, carnage or whatever. And he's on, he's in doggy style now. And, you know, like, I can almost see his junk hanging out of that diaper thing. And and they're whipping him and kicking him. And all I know is I really want in his pants or in his diaper or whatever. And there's there's nothing I can do about it. So I just kind of just keep taking pictures because that's what I do. So... They take Jesus up to the crucifix. You know, they put that big log thing on him, you know, and and like make him walk up there. And they, every time they just keep kicking him, and he gets back up just like a man, you know. And they put him on the on the cross, and they like nail these spikes into his hands. And I swear to God, I, it looked like they were literally nailing spikes. I don't know how they did special effects again. So he's up there hanging, and he's just like looking sexy even while he's getting crucified. And then on top of that, it's like not just that he's got. All these guards around him. I should also mention that the guards are super hot. One of them would like give him a sponge bath with this big sponge on on a stick, and another one would come up just because you know he's all jacked up on testosterone. Another one would come up and just stab him in the gut just to be a dick, you know. And so this whole thing went on for I don't know, maybe half hour, and finally the poor guy died. And then the the devil comes out and makes this victory speech, and and everyone's like, boo. You know, and, and even I, I'm like, bah. and, uh, and then they like wrap him up in a white sheet and they carry him to the audience. And then they, they take him down to the tomb and they throw him in and give him a bunch of like uh, speeches and drama, 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 whatever. Until finally it's like, boom. And now Jesus is back and he's alive, but he's got like a wardrobe change. Like, this is like the clean cut hot Jesus, you know, like he's wearing like this like clean white robe and his hair looks like he's been showered. And so he gives a speech and he like, thanks his dad. And he holds up a set of these huge giant golden keys. And he's just like, anyone's welcome to join me, you know? And I'm just like, hell yeah, I want keys to your place. You know, he's talking about the kingdom in heaven and everybody can be a part of it. So basically we're told that we're going to follow him to heaven. So right after that, all these angels come out in the audience. I don't know how to describe them other than, like, disco dancers. And they're, like, twirling around like my friends at a fish show. So they take us to heaven, but everything's gold and white. And, like, we all wait for Jesus. And then he goes down the aisle, like Princess Diana. And he's, he's got, like, a real crown on, like, not like a thorny one. And he's got, like, this long train. So um, I decided I'm going to find him after the show. But the thing is, like, when the show ends, it's, like, crazy. And I've got, like, 2,000 christians around me i'm trying to weed through and so i can't find jesus i think he pretty much went straight to the green room because he's probably exhausted so then i'm like well maybe i can find one of the the hot guards you know but none of them are around either they've all disappeared so it's just me and a bunch of christians i have actually accomplished anything that i set out right because first of all like i kind of wanted to like feel at one with these people that i don't understand and after seeing all that shit i think they're fucking crazy You know, like, even, like, the really nice families who seem to, like, really love each other, like, it seemed super warped, you know? And so now I'm, like, actually more judgmental than ever of, like, fundamentalist kind of Christians. And then on top of that, like, this other, like, default plan that kind of came out of nowhere of, like, banging Jesus, that totally failed. And so now I'm kind of leaving this park feeling like a jerk and more lonely than ever and horny as hell. And that's how I have to go back to New York City, right? So I'm going back to New York City, the loneliest place I've ever lived as a single woman, and it's cold, and I sleep in a cold bed by myself. But now I've noticed that something has changed in me, because now when I'm on the subway or I'm in a Starbucks or some crowded place and I've got, like, people banging into me, I'm like a walking, like, hormonal landmine. Because, like, some guy, any man that, like, bumps into me on the subway or, like, Touches my shoulder on accident or like whatever, like I'm just like, (laughs) you know, even if they're like gross and I would never ever want to date them or anything, Um, so I'm getting turned on against my will all the time and I'm like, what is going on? Because I'm clearly I don't like I don't want to have sex with this person and yet like I'm like overwhelmed with like wanting to fucking grab them. So it occurred to me that maybe I'm not like this like sex fiend or whatever that I (laughs) that I was starting to wonder if maybe I wasn't. Maybe, I, maybe the whole thing with Jesus was like not really about fucking Jesus. It's just about like being touched by somebody. So I came up with a solution that I actually suggest any single woman out there without a boyfriend or a partner or whatever, whether you're in New York City, the loneliest, coldest place ever with 9 million people or a farmhouse in the middle of nowhere, do what I do and pay someone to touch you. Twice a month I go and I get a massage and I haven't slept with any douchebag since. to do, how to move
2: him been changed, yes really
4: changed
1: In these past few days When I've seen myself
0: I seem like someone else
2: I don't see why he moves me.
1: He's a man.
2: He's
5: just a man.
1: And I had so many. many.
2: This Is Risk, that was uh, our good friend Gelsol created a little collage there called They Don't Know How to Love Him, Uh, various people singing I Don't Know How to Love Him from Jesus Christ Superstar. That was uh, my very, very, very favorite song throughout most of my childhood. In fact, my parents had to buy that album for me a few times because... (laughs) When someone would upset me in the family, I would masochistically take a penny, scratch the song right off the vinyl and thereby trying to make that family member feel bad for, oh, look what we made Kevin do, destroy this thing that he loves so much. I think this is probably behavior similar to, uh, you know, your average uh, serial killer. (laughs) Folks, it's late in the show. I'm getting a little slap happy here. At this point, I often think, good Lord, there's still episode going on here. What have we taken on? But there is still very much indeed episode to be had here. Because I haven't even yet told you that after Soul's collage there, we heard a little something from Jeff Barr called... Oh, Jesus, what the hell is it called? Hold on. I got to bring it up here on the iTunes. Don't get all uppity with me. Just because I don't know what's on the show. It's called Mott Rojam. And if you take a good look at that word, you can probably figure out what's going on there. And this is Ultracat behind me now. We have one final story from one of the most beloved figures in all of the storytelling lands. This is none other than Mr. Dan Kennedy, the host of the Moth podcast. The Moth the granddaddy of all storytelling shows, the show that kind of uh, led the way. Dan not only hosts their podcast, he also hosts uh, many of their uh, live shows. He's also the author of the book Rock On, An Office Power Ballad. We were thrilled to hear that Dan is a fan of our show, and so we couldn't wait to have him on. Dan actually told a couple stories this particular night, and uh, let me just uh, set this one up by saying that uh, he found himself with a very, very high-paying job after many, 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 many years of being a starving artist type downtown. And the sudden shift was getting him down. So this is what happened one New Year's Eve when Dan was trying to deal with with having a comfortable lifestyle we call this one the edge
1: I'm sitting at home dressed really normally in our big apartment and, and it's, it's New Year's Eve and it's counting down to like midnight, like it's, it's like a couple minutes to midnight. My girlfriend is in like the modern kitchen making a little snack. I'm sitting on a fancy couch with two laptops putting software on them for us. And I'm like, this is, this is terrible, like who... I'm really losing my edge, right? I mean, well, I, didn't ha- I never had a fucking edge, it was a delusion to start with, but... <laughs> Like, I was engaged in that time in your life where you're like, I'm losing my edge. and like, I should have slightly messed up hair. That's my edge. And so (laughs) I go, wait a minute. Like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to sort of turn the volume up a little bit. And like, we'd been lying to each other fairly successfully. We're like, yeah, let's not do anything this New Year's Eve since we were out on the West Coast coast for Christmas, and we saw your parents and stuff, we're like, yeah, totally, it just feels good to be home, which is just basically us going, like, no matter how much stuff we have, we're still, like, artist loners, aren't we? And it's like, yes, we are. Okay. So I'm sitting there, and I go, wait a minute, my friend Nick was working on this movie down in Austin, this, like, little independent film, and he drove back to New York, and he brought fireworks with him. He gave me some of those fireworks. I still have them in a box in the back bedroom. So I'm like, guess who's back? me, like (laughs) the original guy with some edge is going to turn up the volume starting now for New Year's Eve. So I didn't want my girlfriend to be alarmed by the return of me. So (laughs) I like sort of walked, you know, like by her, like. into the back room, opened up the box that Nick had given me. I took out this monstrosity of a firework. It's like this big, it's like this round, and it has, I don't know if you've seen these, I don't. you're adults, we're all adults, let's, we're not well-versed in fireworks, but it has a big plastic blade, like propeller across it, right? And a huge fuse, and the idea is you set this on the ground and you light the fuse, it starts spinning, and it becomes a helicopter of sorts, a fiery, helicopter that's just out to end horribly, but a helicopter. (laughs) And you light the fuse, and it goes up. So I'm like, oh, those are great. Okay, wow. So um, I open the window. (laughs) Because I'm like, we're on the 20th story. Here's Here's the plan. The plan was, I will take this propellerized thing, I will light it, I will throw it out the window, it will have a 20 story head start this is going to be brilliant it will go 20 stories higher than it was designed to go it will explode this will be like a professional grade firework display like people like in lower manhattan will be like oh my god they're having professional fireworks over there too like by that big building of bland fucking condos filled with yuppies. And, uh, and I'd be like, eh, you know, it's not. It's just me doing something awesome. So I open the window. I light the fuse. I'm standing there with, I mean, the fuse looks like comical. It's long. It's sparkling. I'm holding it kind of like, shit, I can't believe I'm back. You know, like, this is awesome. And I'm holding it. And my girlfriend walks in right as I'm holding it and it's sparking and the window's open. And she looks at me like, Wow, had a hunch. You are an idiot. <laughs> this is sort of confirming that. And I'm like, "Hey, and for one second I like leaned back and I was such a like I was such a like lazy sort of like bad seed. I was like like the stoner uncle in like the movie with I don't know, you know, whatever awesome indie chick has a stoner uncle. I was that guy." And so, like, Catherine Keener would be looking at me, going, You're, don't be so hard on yourself. You're great. And I'd be like, oh, seriously, should I do my art? I was like that guy for a second. <laughs> and, and I had the, like, and I could feel it. Like, I had the look. I had everything. And Maria goes, what are you doing? And I go, hey, happy new year. And, like, I toss it out the window, right? <laughs> I don't know what the... F- Fuck happens. But it goes out the window if something goes terribly wrong. It doesn't, it 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 I don't they're not it flips and it starts going downward <laughs> instead of upward. And I'm like, oh shit, this is bad. It's like that feeling when you're eight and you hit the baseball and it's going straight for someone's living room picture window in the suburbs. And I'm like, oh, not good. It starts like this 60-mile-an-hour downward trajectory, which is just weird. I'm like, I've never seen anything go downward except like a smart bomb on CNN. (laughs) And it just starts going like 60 miles an hour. It's like 15-story, 14-story, 13-story, 12-story, 8, 10, 7. I'm like, oh, oh." fuck. And uh, I turn instantly to Maria, and I go from being the awesome, handsome, stoner, loser uncle with Catherine Keener in the indie film to a frightened nine-year-old. I go, oh my god, this isn't funny. Something's wrong. What am I supposed to do? What should I do? And she, the first time, years together, would support me through any amount of mistakes I've made, puts her hands up, takes two steps backwards, and goes, this is all you. (laughs) which terrifies me 20 fold. I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, no, can't be all, you're in a relationship. Like, this is both of us. You know, it can't just be when you want it. Like, and so I'm like, shit. And so I look out the window. This thing is going. It swear to God, like it is guided by lasers. Bangs a lefty at story number three. (laughs) Hard left hits like this weird extra turbo charge, like because it thinks it's going up still. It's like I gotta pour it on now because I'm getting ready for the explosion. It's going up our alley. It hit. There's there's this dumpster. Here's the thing with this dumpster. It's like two times as big as this theater, right? It's one of those dumpsters that gets brought in on an 18-wheeler. And it's full of Christmas trees. (laughs) What could go wrong, right? So it's full of like 400, however many units are in this 20-story building, there's like 400 or something Christmas trees. And they're those big, super huge Christmas trees that rich people buy. Like those ones that are in the TV ads that are never in our houses, they're those. And I'm like, oh, my God. And under that, there's like a layer of wrapping paper. (laughs) It's like a perfect storm. It's like if it's terrible what's about to happen. So, And I can see this. I'm like, no, 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 no. You know, like make a right. Do something erratic. Don't go for the dumpster. It's going right for the dumpster like it knows where to go. Hits it burrows in, hits like a turbo charge, so burrowing down through the trees, into the wrapping paper, and then, surprise, my multicolor, fiery ejaculate is ready to go. So it just goes, once it burrows in there, and I'm like, oh, God, this is so not going well tonight. Worst year ever already. So this thing, it, it burrows in, it explodes, then comes, like, the next charge and the next charge, and I'm like... Pff- Fuck it, does it come with like a can of gasoline as well? What's it gonna do next? (laughs) So I go, oh no. But then it stops. And I'm like, oh my God, I might have gotten away with this. I'm like looking down, and then I see it. I see a spot of fire about this big. It's probably about the size of a dinner saucer, but from 20 stories up, it looks about the size of a half dollar. So I'm like, okay, I can handle this. Nobody needs to know about this. The fire department, no one's gonna have to get involved in this. I had taken to putting those little bottles of Evian in the fridge at home. (laughs) Gayest, in the seventh grade sense of the word, thing I've ever done, but I just thought, oh, it's so nice to have these at the office, I should have a whole shelf of them at home as well. So I run into the kitchen, I get a bottle of Evian, and I go, okay, I'm running down there, I'm gonna take care of this. And then I grab the um, Arm & Hammer baking soda that Maria had in there, which like freshens up your refrigerator or something, I'm like, that stuff puts out grease fires, I know that. Bam, jamming that in my pocket, hit the elevator, 20 stories down, slowest elevator ride of my life, like Muzak of Billy Joel, and stopping at every floor so like characters from Brett Easton Ellis novels can get on and get off, and I'm like, fuck, like, I just gotta get to the lobby, I gotta handle this. I get down there, I see the doorman. The doorman is this guy, this, this black fella, who is like straight out of a Tom Waits song. He's been in lower Manhattan since like the 70s. He's seen it all, right? He works the like midnight to seven shift. I go up to him really casually because I don't want him to know what's up. So I go, hey, how's it going? I think the um, dumpster is having a problem. He's <laughs> like, the dumpster's having a problem. <laughs> I don't think dumpsters have problems. I'm like, no, it's, um, yeah, he's like, I'm sure it's fine. And then I just made up a lie, because one of the cool things about having a normal job and dressing normally is you can lie the shit out of anything and people believe you. So I go, um, I didn't want to have to say this, but I saw some kids uh, going down Wall Street, shooting off bottle rockets, and one of the bottle rockets went right into our dumpster, and I heard one of the boys say, oh, I think it's setting it on fire. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like people weren't like gangs of people weren't going down Wall Street setting off bottle rockets when it was making them into billionaires. Like let alone now in 2002. So I go, he goes, well let's go check it out. I follow him through this corridor. Ba ba ba. We go back. It's starting to be very thick, acrid smoke. Not really a good sign. He opens the door and is lit from head to toe in orange. His face just goes. Like if, it was, if you were like shooting it for comedy, you would go cut, let's do another one and do it with half as much orange light because it looks really cheesy and fake. It was that orange. So I go look out and I have this bottle of water and this thing of Arm & Hammer baking soda. I push my way past him. He is, starts laughing when he sees me do this, just laughing like a father who's embarrassed of his son. And I push my way back, I look, there are flames, like, taller than the ceiling right here. And I go, oh shit, I'm not, you know, he's like, you're not doing anything with that, ha, ha, ha. And I'm like, call the fire department, sir. He goes back in, calls the fire department, and I'm like, okay, so, I'm gonna go back, uh, I'm gonna go back upstairs, I think, this is, they, they probably got this, this seems handled, <laughs> meanwhile, the whole dumpster is, like, a flame going up to, like, the second story of our building. I go upstairs and I watch as six New York City fire trucks pull into the back, like cut the bolts off of the gates back there, go in, drag this dumpster out there, shooting foam and hoses and everything at it. And I'm sitting there like some weird, like pervert or arsonist or something, like in the dark, like barely looking out the window from like 20 stories up, going, "Oh, oh, look at him! Oh, it's almost out!" and and I'm like, oh God, you know, like adulthood is not so awesome. And so um, I then finally calm down enough to go to sleep. Like around one o'clock, I go lay on the bed. It's really quiet. Maria's asleep, and I'm laying there on my back, staring at the ceiling. And then she goes, "They're gonna find you." <laughs> Thanks very much.
2: This is the Russian Futurists with Golden Years. Yo, know, I have learned that uh, if you want to get stoned and head out into the night to uh, hit a local sex party, this song is perfect to have on the iPod for the journey there, my friends. Just a little tip, just a friendly neighborhood tip here from Risk. Oh! Another tip, on our website at risk-show.com, one of you, a fan of the show, sent in a picture of himself completely nude. <laughs> if, you gotta go to the site to see that. Come on! Don't be ridiculous person listening to this. Go see the nude guy at risk-show.com. And don't forget the big fundraiser, folks. We wonderful, funny, silly, and awesome prizes that you can get for pledging to us. That'll be at Indiegogo.com, but it's not there yet. It'll be there in September. It's going to be a lot of fun, so stay tuned. Keep checking out the podcast. What else? Oh, Andy Kindler. Andy Kindler is doing the show at UCB in Los Angeles. It is September 9th. Andy Kindler, UCBLA. Risk. The theme that night is the battle. To find out about our classes, go to thestorystudio.org. If you're a college student, contact us about getting us to come to your school. If you're interested in advertising with us, contact us also, kevinatrisk-show.com. And I'm sure I've forgotten to say something. But I haven't forgotten to say, folks, today's the day take a risk